Well, our subject this morning, this is the longest sermon title I've ever had, by the way. I hope that's not a a harbinger of a long message. It's not intended to be a long message. That's why I broke it up into two parts. The spiritual connection between creation and salvation. This is coming from my own personal study in Scripture and something that has impressed upon me just recently, and I'm going to try to present that to you this Sabbath and next Sabbath. But before we get into our message, I'd just like to share a quick, brief testimony, and I shared this at prayer meeting Wednesday night. I'll I'll repeat it again, but for those of you that were not at prayer meeting, by the way, if you have not come to prayer meeting yet, please come. Please come. It is a tremendous blessing to study and pray together as God's family. Well, as many of you know, a couple months ago in April, I was in Mongolia, And while I was in Mongolia, I had the opportunity to teach English at a public school. Most of the people in Mongolia are Buddhist, and by far and away, that's the majority of the population. Well, there were several kids there as we were teaching English during the week, uh, was there with Fountain View Academy, who were so impressed with the young people in our group that they wanted to spend extra time with us. And so they started asking us, where are you staying? Where are you guys at? And, and so on. Well, this one fellow in particular, in the top left, there's a person standing beside me. Uh, his name was Hansen. He was uh, just a, a terrific young fellow. He spoke English fairly well. And they wanted to come to, uh, they found out we were doing a concert, a music concert Friday night, the orchestra and the choir. And so they came to that. That's Friday night on the left. Then on the right, top right, was a church service. I mentioned to Hansen that if you want to see us again, we were leaving Sunday, but if you want to see us again, uh, obviously school's out for the weekend, but we go to church on Saturday, and uh, I'll be speaking. And so that's actually him on the left side of that picture on the top right. He came the first time going to a Christian church ever, came to church. And then there uh, in Sabbath afternoon, he, he didn't really want to leave. He just wanted to hang out with us some more. So there he is, that Sabbath afternoon, the bottom left picture. This is all in a progression. And then on Sunday, the picture on the right, our plane got delayed over 12 hours. And he found out where we were staying. We got, we'd all checked out of our hotel and loaded up at the airport. And when they told us it was 12 hours, the airline paid to send us to another hotel where we could sit and wait. And so he found out about this and came and saw us there. And I was just so impressed with the opportunity to connect with that young man. Anyway, well, I got an email just this past week, this past Sabbath, and I was blown away. Uh, Here is the same young fellow right there, and he got baptized last Sabbath into the Seventh-day Adventist church there uh, and is a Christian. I'm trying to find a way to contact with him. I don't know how his family feels about this. I don't know how his friends feel about this. I mean, it's one thing to make a commitment when you have 700 other people that are with you and surrounding you, but to take a stand when you're singular and by yourself, that's that's a different situation. So I got this email from the pastor there, and I've asked him to try to convey to him that I'm praying for him, and I want to do all that I can to encourage and support him from on the other side of the world from where he is living. Praise the Lord. By the way, we have some evangelistic meetings coming up this September, which I'll be presenting. And I hope and pray that you will really want to invite someone to come to those meetings. Really, the best invitation is a personal invitation. I'm sure we'll probably do some handbills and some flyers and some posters and some ads in uh, local newspapers. But there's really nothing more meaningful than a personal invitation from somebody that you know. 
So I just want to plead with you for the, the Lord to put that burden on your heart for other people because that's the same burden he has. And he invites us, take my burden or yoke upon you because my burden is light. Well, anyway, let's get into our subject this morning. And how many of you know much about the Renaissance? I used to teach world history for many years. And one of the things about the Renaissance, it was known as being an explosion of creativity and art. This is one of the most famous pieces of sculpture from the Renaissance, Michelangelo's Pieta. I guess Pieta is the Latin word for pity. And it's a picture of Jesus after he had been crucified being held there by his mother Mary. Just an artist thinking. I'm not sure it went down exactly that way biblically. But nonetheless, here they have this illustrated. And this is a tremendous piece of artwork, skillful, creative, It was sculpted over the course of two years out of Carrera marble from 1498 to 1499, over 500 years ago. And it is incredibly lifelike and realistic. And I know this in part because I've seen it in person. Probably Pastor Ferguson has probably also seen it there in the Vatican in Rome. And it was actually attacked several years back by someone with a hammer and pieces were chipped off. So they have bulletproof glass barrier up there now. So you can't get too close to it. But nonetheless, it is an impressive piece of sculpture. In fact, uh, it's so impressive that after Michelangelo sculpted this, there were whispers that other people maybe had, people were marveling so much at this piece of artwork that there were some people giving credit to other sculptors for having done this. Now, Michelangelo did something that he'd never done for any of his other pieces of art. When he was hearing these things, he went into the church at nighttime and he chiseled his name across the sash there of Mary, Michelangelo, and then he instantly regretted it for having done such a, a vain thing, but nonetheless, it's still there. He wanted to get credit for the fact that he had sculpted this incredible, lifelike, realistic piece of artwork. Well, creativity. Where did this marble come from? Did Michelangelo create the marble or did he use the marble and create something with it? Where did the tools come from to sculpt with the hammer and the chisel? Where did the intelligence and the thinking ability come from in order to do this? You know, it was interesting. I heard a little story some time ago about a group of scientists that were meeting together and they were so convinced that science had reached such a point and pinnacle of advancement that they said, we're as smart as God now. We don't really need God. We can create things with DNA and, and with modern science. And so they sent one of the members of the scientists to go tell God that they didn't need him anymore and that they could create just like he could. And as the story goes, God said, okay, well, if that's the case, well, then let's have a man-making contest and we'll see who can make the best man. And so to which the scientists readily agreed because they did not need God. And God said, okay, well, you can go first. The scientists scooped down and began to pick up some dirt to which God replied, no, 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 get your own dirt. I know it's just a funny story. It's not true. It's not real, but it captures an idea. Get your own dirt. Where does dirt even itself come from? A basic element of of building material. And science, as great as it might be and claim to be, they cannot create even dirt. Only God has the power to create out of nothing. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning, I am convinced that creation is under attack. I mean, it is tremendously under attack. In fact, this was an article that came out in a paper not too long ago. More Christians, quote Christians, that call themselves Christians, believe in evolution than creation. 
more Christians believe in creation than evolution. How is this so? Well, let me just quote a few lines from this article that was in Slate magazine under their science section. It says there, few things have been as divisive in our country as the idea of evolution and creation. While the majority of people in Europe and in many other parts of the world accept evolution, the United States woefully lags behind. But it's catching up in terms of believing. And this is, of course, uh, they're writing, lamenting that people still believe in creation. Today, four in 10 adults in America believe that humans have existed in our present form since the beginning of time. And in many religious groups, that number is even higher. This is terrible. Their quote. This is their quote. But then it says, now, at long last, there seems to be hope. National polls show that creationism is beginning to falter. The belief that God created the world himself. This is faltering, and Americans are finally starting to move in favor of evolution. After decades of legal battles, resistance to science education, and a deeply rooted cultural divide, evolution may be poised to win out once and for all, the author writes. And then here, take notice now, here's why. The people responsible for this shift are the young. Young people, you better sit up and listen more carefully. A study shows that people younger than 30, 73% of them expressed some sort of belief in evolution. 73% of people under 30. So if you're under 30 in here, you need to pay particularly close attention because it's your age that they are banking on changing and turning the tide. And they go on to mention that this has jumped up in just the last seven years, 12 percentage points in terms of young people believing that evolution is the way that we are in existence. Now, I found this a little bit disconcerting. The article uses hopeful language to describe, quote, generational momentum in support of evolution. The basic premise for generational momentum is that old people die. And if old people die, the young people will take their place and that will give us generational momentum. That's not a way to determine what's right and wrong is to just hope for people to die that disagree with you, in in my opinion. Terrifying. Well, I don't know if you saw this in the news report. Just last week, there was big news uh, that came out that the oldest human fossils that have ever been found were discovered in Morocco, over in West Africa, which completely alters the history of our whole existence from an evolutionary perspective. These fossils dated back over 100,000 years earlier than the earliest claim-believed fossils that were from East Africa, Tanzania area, of where they once thought the earliest humans came from or evolved from out of this cradle of civilization in East Africa. Now, I found it interesting, the way they came to this conclusion of 30,000 plus years, between 300,000 and 350,000, is through a measure or procedure called thermoluminescence. What is thermoluminescence? They used this procedure to calculate how much time had passed since these blades, they found some blades that were buried in the layers of debris there with some of the skulls and fossils. They found some some metal pieces of, of flint which had been burned in a fire, and they used thermoluminescence to try and determine how long had it been since the fire burned the flint, and they extrapolated from that, everything found in the same layer must be the same age. They don't read their Bibles. When we set aside the Bible account of creation, even the the brightest, most brilliant scientists are really clueless 
in terms of our origins. Well, what does the religious leader of the so-called world say? What about the Pope? Does he read his Bible? Does he read carefully the account that we find in Scripture? Well, the Pope comes out and says that evolution and the Big Bang are real. Really. In fact, quoting from this article, this is from a couple years ago, several years ago, uh, that Pope Francis is not the hardcore creationist some of his predecessors were. In 2014, he told a, an Academy of Sciences conference not to always take the Bible literally. Really. When we, and quote, now the Pope says, quote, when we read in Genesis the account of creation, we risk imagining God as a magician with a magic wand able to make everything, Francis said, quote, but it is not so. Really? Now, why am I going to all these details to talk about creationism today? Here's the thought that, that dawned on me is that as people begin to doubt and disbelieve God's creative power to create the physical world around us, where am I going? They also begin to doubt and waver in God's power to spiritually create a new life in them. That is the connection, and I want to explore that um, over the next two Sabbaths. Our focus this Sabbath is really to focus on and uphold and understand clearly and biblically. We want to be biblically correct, not so much politically correct. Maybe we don't really want to be politically correct at all. We want to be biblically correct Christians. Amen? The creation, the connection rather, is significant. So we'll focus on physical creation this Sabbath, and next Sabbath we'll look at the incredible power of God in the same manner and in the same way to create spiritually a new life in everyone who wants to have it. It is an open invitation. So that is the focus here of our two-part series. As I mentioned, as people begin to question or doubt God as the physical creator of the universe, they also question and doubt his power to make us a new spiritual creation. Point two, as we believe, uphold, and recognize God's creative power in the physical creation, we will also believe, uphold, and recognize God's creative power in spiritual recreation. Both physical and spiritual creation are accomplished by the same way, and that is by the power of the Word of God. So there is a definite connection, and we'll look at that as we uh, study today. Well, let's open our Bibles, and uh, I'm going to have most of the verses on the screen, and I do that in part so I can go faster <laughs> and cover more material. But at the same time, we want to be diligent students of the Bible, and we're studying this morning. Our focus is on the tremendous power of God in physical creation of the world. Our first verse, Revelation 14, 6 and 7, a, a verse that I hope you have on your list of verses to be memorized, along with 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Revelation 14, 6 through 12, what are known as the three angels' messages. And the question that I'm asking here with this passage is, what present truth, present truth command is given by God to all who accept the everlasting gospel. And the Bible says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, which means it never expires. It never gets old to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people saying with a, what kind of a voice, a loud voice. The Greek word is megaphone. We obviously can know what that megaphone is an amplification with a loud voice. What does it say? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. And then the command comes to what? Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. 
Did you realize that everyone that accepts the everlasting gospel, there are three commands or imperatives that are placed upon our accepting that gospel. And it is number one, to fear God. I've preached about that. That was my first sermon here. The importance vitally of having fear and awe of of our holy God. Number two, it is to give glory to him. And then number three, it is to worship him. Worship the creator. So there is a call and appeal to worship the creator. And as the devil turns people's minds away from the fact that God is the creator, they lose the ability to receive the salvation that God offers because they don't acknowledge him as their creator and they fail to worship him as their creator. They do not receive the benefit and the blessing of that. Well, what is necessary, absolutely necessary as we study our Bibles to understand physical creation. If you're taking notes this morning, you want to write down the verses. I was going to make a study guide and I didn't have enough time. So I apologize for that. I'm an analytical thinker, analytical person. I like to have things where I can fill out and see and follow along. And it helps me pay attention. Hebrews chapter 11, verse three, the Bible says through what? Through faith, we have what kind of an experience? Is it unclear? If I understand it, then it must be clear, right? Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed. What's another word for framed? Were created, were made, were brought forth, were framed. How? By the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Only God has the ability to create something out of nothing. When an artist creates a masterpiece on a canvas with paint and and all the other equipment they use, they're only using materials that have already been created. They might be a creative person, but they're not making things out of nothing. That prerogative, that power is something that only God has to create something. And there's a Latin phrase for this, ex nihilo, which says out of nothing. God is the only one who can do this. But notice what's necessary. Our building block foundation is always based on faith, believing what God says in his word and trusting and depending upon it. And from that point, we can grow and build on top of it. But we must start on the foundation of faith, which is believing what God has said, because he is God and he has said it and he cannot tell a lie. That's why I believe this account. Now, here's a curious question. Matthew 19, verses three through five. The question is, did Jesus believe in creation? We're going to look at some other verses that make it clear that Jesus is the creator. But some people might say, well, did Jesus himself believe in the creation? We can look at this passage here and uh, let's read it first. And then we'll point out some things that Jesus himself says. Speaking to the Pharisees of his day, religious leaders, Matthew 19, it says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he, that is Jesus, answered and said unto them, have ye not read? First of all, that is an implied rebuke. Have you not read? Meaning they should have done what? They should have read it. It's there. They should have read it and known what it says. Jesus says, have you not read that what? He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Now pause on that. Jesus just directly quoted Genesis chapter one, verse 27. And the creation of of Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, verse 26, the Bible says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now, verse 27, and God said, he said, all that he had said and that he had made was good. Let us make man in our image. As he created Adam and Eve, he created 
them male and female. The Bible says created he them. Jesus quotes directly from Genesis 1. Now notice verse 5. And he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain or two shall be one flesh. So notice that Jesus directly quotes Genesis 1 and 2, where we find the whole creation story. If Jesus quotes from those verses and refers people back to those verses, do you think that he believed that they're true? Yes, if we're going to be a Christian, anyone that claims to be a Christian must accept if Jesus said it, he must believe it. And I want to believe what Jesus believed. I want to live the way that Jesus lived. So Jesus believed in the creation. Well, let's look at now the verses that you're going to know very well. Who actually created the heavens and the earth? The Bible tells us this. Now notice here the verses Genesis 1.1 and John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16. You want to go to the Old Testament and see the, this idea there? Fine. You don't want to go to the, you want to go to the New Testament and see the same? Fine. We can go any, any division of the Bible and see support for this idea. Genesis 1.1. In the very beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's as plain as can be. And then when we read in the Gospel of John, John 1 verse 3, all things were made by him or made, created. And without him, speaking of Jesus, who is the word, was not anything made that was made. And then you can continue on in Colossians and see where it says, for by him, speaking of Jesus, were all things created. Anyone who claims to be a Christian and just does not recognize that Jesus is the creator, that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says about himself and believes. Why take his name if we don't take his power to create seriously? All things were made and created by him that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. We'll come back to that point in just a moment. First Chronicles 16, verses 25 and 26. How does God distinguish himself from all pretenders? And this is a simple point, but I like the point nonetheless. How does God distinguish himself and identify who he is in comparison with false gods, false idols, and all other pretenders? Notice what the Bible says. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord, what? Made the heavens. He appeals to the fact that he is the maker, the creator of all the heavens as the distinguishing characteristic of who he is as God, as the true God. This is the identifying characteristic that he is the creator. All the other gods of wood and stone and whatever it might be, they are not the creators. They themselves were created by human beings. They do not have the power to create. God is the creator. Well, the question now is, why did God create the earth and people? Maybe you ever wondered that question. Why? Why did God create human beings? I just have Revelation 4.11 up here. Colossians 1.16, we saw that earlier, and I'll refer to that in a moment. Revelation 4.11, the last book of the Bible, there is a, a call that's made, and it says there, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things, and why? For thy pleasure they are and were created. Consider this point. You and I were created to please God, to be an enjoyment to God, to be in a relationship with God. 
not to be slaves or robots, but to be in a connection, in a relationship with God for his pleasure. He enjoys creating beings that have the freedom to think and the freedom to choose. And he longs for us to choose to recognize him as our creator and to recognize his power and his care for us. God created us for his pleasure. That is awesome. And it says in Colossians 1:16, all things were created by him and for him. We were created for him. What a high purpose that is. Created for God to please God. This is our position. Now we come to our scripture reading and the question is, how did God create the world and everything in it? Don't miss this point at all. And it's a verse that we hopefully all know. Don't miss it at all. How did he do this? I cannot explain the way that particles formed and atoms and molecules and things came together, but I can tell you that from the main point is that it was spoken to existence by God's word. By the word of the Lord were the heavens. This tells us how when God says, let there be light, let there be the animals and and all the things in the, the days of creation. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done question for you, how much time elapsed from when God spoke the word until the thing actually happened? Was it like a a week or two? Maybe, Maybe an hour? A minute? A second? Or was it instantaneous? And the reason why I'm making this point is because it's the same, it's going to carry over the same in the spiritual creation. When God creates a new heart and a new mind and a new life within us, by the power of his spoken word, which he's given us in the Bible, it happens instantaneously. Here's the point. If we we put God on a, a delay basis, that's really a form of evolution, that it takes time to work its way out. It takes time to evolve, to get to a certain condition or state. But when God says something, it happens because he said it, because the power to accomplish what God says is in the word itself, which he speaks. I cannot explain it, but I can see it by faith and accept it by faith. And it is a reality by faith. Faith is necessary for these things to become a reality. So a key point, God creates by his word. Well, our next question as we're exploring physical creation, how much time did God take to create the earth? Now, there's some who want to say, well, science says that there's all these old things. They keep digging up. They just dug up fossils last week, 300,000 years old. Oh, my. What am I going to do? It goes against what the Bible says. Here we got to be clear. Does any true science, any true study of nature ever conflict with divine revelation that God has given us? It will never conflict. And so if there's a conflict, it's not because the Bible is wrong. It's because science, so-called science, is wrong. And we have a statement in uh, the Spirit of Prophecy which tells us uh, the reason for a lot of these misunderstandings with old things is because scientists today fail to take into account the, the actions of the flood, the worldwide flood, and the condition of things on the earth before the flood when men and animals and trees were much larger and taller and much different than they are today. And so by failing to take that into consideration, when they dig up and find things, then they come to wrong conclusions. Well, noticing here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, we don't have to guess. You know, I think it's clear in Genesis 1 where it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day, and the evening and the morning were the third day. 
Some people are inclined to believe that the days of creation were over vast periods of time and that that will somehow make harmonize the Bible and, and the science that they have today that, that comes up with conflicting things of, of creation. We can harmonize it by saying that creation was all drawn out and indefinite, but that, con- that contradicts Scripture itself. Notice the very fourth commandment right in the heart of the Ten Commandments. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. I mean, that's six days. I mean, it means six days the Lord made or created heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day, and then blessed the seventh day. Also, we have this a little bit later in Exodus 31. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Don't let anyone push you around that creation was over vast periods of time. And here's the other, the, the major flaw with that idea is that if, if the days of creation were vast, indefinite periods of time, what does that do to the Sabbath? Well, then it's not definite. It was, if all these other days aren't clear, then the Sabbath day, the seventh day is not clear, if that were the case. But it's not the case because six literal days is what God took to create the world. And then he rested on the seventh literal day. And we have this weekly cycle preserved, handed down to us from the very creation itself. Even though they've changed calendars, they've never changed the days of the week. All right, Hebrews chapter one, verse three. How does God continue and sustain the creation that he has made? Interesting question. How does God continue it or sustain what he has created, what he has made? Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, speaking of Jesus and the image, the express image of God the Father, and upholding all things how? By the word of his power. So this is a significant point. God creates by his word and he sustains and upholds by his word. Now, I found it interesting as I tried to do a little study on this passage here. The word in Greek for upholding it doesn't just mean to like just to, to hold something, just holding it there. In, in the Greek, the word actually has the idea of not only upholding it, but carrying it and taking it to a intended destination. Does that make sense to you? That God is upholding all things, your life, my life, and all that's happening on earth, that he is upholding and bearing it and carrying it, upholding it to an intended purpose or destination. And of course, his purpose is that all would, would come to him and be saved. But it is through the power in his word that things are upheld. In other words, let me say that differently. He didn't just create things and then leave it and step back for all of it to just work out on its own by the power within itself. He has to continue to exert his power through his word to continue to maintain that. Jesus says in John five seventeen, my father worketh hitherto and I work in the sense of I'm working constantly to uphold what I have created. It doesn't operate on its own with its own power inherently because of itself. It needs sustaining power physically and we need sustaining power spiritually. It's the same principle through the word of God. Psalm 19, one and two, how does nature speak to our senses and what does it declare? The things that God has created, the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. What is the glory of God? You know it. The character. God's glory is really the attributes, the character of God. What he's really like. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech 
and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I mean, it, it says these things that God has created in nature continue to speak to us and they reveal the glory and the character of God. Similar statement here in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. By the way, this is a picture of me several years ago at one of my favorite places in the area, Rainbow Falls. Rainbow Falls over towards uh, Sapphire in gorgeous State Park. Beautiful place, beautiful waterfall there, huge waterfall. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For the invisible things of him, this is of God, invisible things, those are going to be qualities and characteristics from the creation of the world are what? Are clearly seen. They're, they're not unclear, but they're clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even, now there's two things listed, his eternal power and Godhead. Now, the King James says Godhead, but the word there for Godhead might better be translated as divine power, eternal, everlasting, unending power, and divinity, the power of God himself, divine power, so that they, this is the wicked, are without excuse. You can see from the creation, you should be able to determine there is an all-powerful, eternal God who is working and has created these things. Now, this is a statement from the book Education that I thought was interesting. Since the book of nature and the book of Revelation bear the impress of the same master mind, they cannot but speak in harmony. By different methods and in different languages, they witness to the same great truths. Science is ever discovering new wonders, but she brings from her research nothing that, rightly understood, conflicts with what? Conflicts with divine revelation. The book of nature and the written word shed light upon each other. They make us acquainted with God by teaching us something of the laws through which he works. Well, what is the memorial, the reminder, the special thing that God has put in place to remind us so we would not forget creation? He actually has given us a day. And he gave it to us at the very beginning, creation week, the seventh day Sabbath. The seventh day Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember. Do you think God knew that people would have a tendency to forget the Sabbath? It's the only commandment that begins with remember, and yet it's the one that most of the Christian world has forgotten. Remember the Sabbath day because it's anchors in creation and it will give you a, a clear picture that I am the creator and I'm the one, the only one who can help you with all of your needs because I have the power to create you. I have the power to help you with whatever you need because I am your creator. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord, not man, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. You know, it's amazing. Only God can make time hallowed or holy. Only God has the power to do that. I can't do that. No one else can do that. Only God can make time, the time that we're now here together worshiping, considering his word and thinking about and meditating upon his, his assurances as our creator this morning. Only God can make this time extra special and holy as it were. So when we worship God on the Sabbath, it is a sign that we recognize that he is our creator and therefore deserves our worship. Well, what is the hinge, the connection between spiritual creation, physical creation and spiritual creation? I hope I'm not belaboring a point that just is so obvious that everybody knows. And if you do know it, I want you to be reconfirmed and greater uh, convinced on it. Listen to Exodus twenty-two thirty-one. The first part there, this is right after the giving of the commandments. The Bible says, and ye shall be holy men unto me. So with the giving of the law, God gives also a statement declaring that, that his people should be holy. 
And if we go to Ezekiel 20:12, that's the second verse up here. God says, moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign, a way of verifying and indicating who my people are, a sign between me, God, and them, his people, that they might know what? I am the Lord that sanctify them. That last phrase up there is, is tremendously significant and important because the Sabbath is two things to us. It's a reminder that God physically created us, and it's a also reminder that God wants to sanctify us or to make us holy. Because here's the point, folks. Only a holy person can keep the Sabbath holy. Does that make sense? We say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But if we ourselves have not experienced the righteousness of Christ and his transformation, I cannot keep something holy when I myself am unholy. Does that make sense? So I'm called to remember the physical creation because it will remind me that God wants to spiritually make me sanctified and holy through the same power, through the same word, so that I can then keep it holy. It's, it's a promise of sanctification and spiritual creation. Well, there's a, a passage here in Scripture, Isaiah 40, 21 through 31, that describes in a beautiful picture the character of God as our creator. The Bible says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. And now I'm going to skip down to verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? This is God speaking to you and I. To whom then will you liken me? Who are you going to compare me with? And look what he says, saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things. When he asks the question, who are you going to compare me with? He invites us to look at and notice what he has created because that should be a convincing proof that he is the creator and all others are just pretenders. They're idols, they're false gods. It says, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Skipping down to verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. The creator of the ends of the earth, he gives us that description of himself and then appeals to the things he's created for us to consider them. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall fail utterly. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In the context of physical creation, God gives us a promise of spiritual creation. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. That promise of renewal and revival that only he can give. So in review here this morning, several key Bible facts, Bible facts, Science, some scientists might say these are not facts, but I believe the Bible is factual. Somebody should have said amen. All right, very good. God is the creator of heaven and earth. We did not evolve. We did not fall into existence by a big bang or an accident. God is the creator. Number two, God created the heaven and the earth. The way that he chose to do this is by his word. 
He spoke the words and all of the things that were created were brought into existence by the power in his word. Number three, the Sabbath is a memorial of physical creation every week. We're here today to worship God as a reminder that he is our creator. And that's the first reason why our worship belongs to him. And then finally, the Sabbath is a sign of Christ's power to make us holy in a spiritual sense, a spiritual new creation. I'm going to close today with a short illustration here. I don't know how many of you have read this book or not before. Have any of you read this book, Roger Morneau, A Trip into the Supernatural? I see a lot of hands going up. Tremendous book when I read that. A lot of people, a lot of you have read it, so you probably read this part here in the book where he talks about his experience in dealing with devil worship and demon worship and as a young teenager getting drawn into the occult. And he describes in the book this going to some of the worship experiences. They would actually have worship services for worshiping demons and worshiping Satan. And he describes going there, and they actually had a priest that was called the Satanist priest who would officiate. And on one occasion, he or some other visiting person was giving a, a presentation about how the devil has the whole world deceived. And all the world were following the devil, even, quote, Christians were following the devil. And so as he is recalling this story, uh, I'm going to pick up now this paragraph and quote him as he said, this, they're being told that everyone is deceived. Roger says, then one person put his hand up and the priest says to him, the Satanist priest, yes, do you want to say something? The person said, what about the Adventists? You can't count them deceived regarding this deception of Satan. And I got a question, he said, how come they can't be brought under the great deception? Speaking about Adventists, the priest said, you're right. I apologize. Here I made a mistake. When I said all the millions of the people living on the face of this planet, everybody was honoring the great master, I forgot the Adventists. I hope people don't forget us today, not because we're obnoxious, but because we're doing such a great work that people notice and realize and want to give glory to our father, which is in heaven. The Satanist priest then says, they are so few in number that I didn't even think to really mention them when you consider all the billions on earth. Then he says, secondly, the reason why they can't be brought under the great deception, let me explain. Now he says, my next statement is going to upset some of you. I'm not telling you this to upset you. I'm telling you this to show the incredible power of God. But what I'm telling you is the honest truth. It is factual. It is reality. Now here I'm quoting from Roger, who's quoting the Satanist priest. The fact that Adventists observe the biblical Sabbath of creation and reverence the creator that day, it makes it impossible for the spirits to deceive them. I know that's not taken from a Bible verse and you can take it for what it's worth. I know Roger wrote a number of other great books about incredible answers to prayer. He had an incredible prayer ministry. But again, he says the fact, quoting the Satanist priest, that we worship God on the day of the memorial of his creation, it makes it impossible for the spirits, the demons, to deceive them. Now, we shouldn't be proud about that. I don't say that to, to, to sit back and think that we, we were okay. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, take heed lest you fall, let no man just think that you're, you're okay, that you're, you're not susceptible to temptation. But then he says this, listen, they, Adventists, are given very special help and great spiritual end insight. Do you realize that? In worshiping God on the Sabbath, the memorial of his creation, we are given very special help and great spiritual insight. And then he closes by saying, under these conditions, they are not ordinary people. 
You and I are not ordinary people because we honor and believe and have faith in the word of God in accomplishing what it says. And therefore, we can experience the blessings and the benefits that God wants to give to everyone, but not those who are not willing and are not believing. The plan of salvation involves a work of creation. The seventh day Sabbath is a reminder of these two important aspects of God, creator and savior. Next Sabbath, we will study from the Bible and look at how God works in a similar manner in our spiritual creation to accomplish our salvation. How many of you today are thankful for God as your creator? Would you raise your hand and say, I'm thankful for God as my creator? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for being our God. Lord, we worship you today as the one who wrought through your son, Jesus Christ, in all creation. Lord, may we never doubt and never waver your creative power in the physical realm. And may we never doubt or waver in your same power in our spiritual lives to create new hearts, new lives, new minds, and a new character within us. Lord, we claim your power today. We need it desperately. We are nothing but jars of clay without you. Bless us this Sabbath, and may we be a blessing to others is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.